This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Diana, and a very special shout out to Soulful Practices here in Vermont. Thank you both so, so much for donating and becoming a part of making this show. It means a lot. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So, if you'd like to be a part of making this show because maybe it helps you just get a better night's sleep and live a more rested, healthy life, then consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a dollar. At $5 a month, you get access to over 50 extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed and um, you also get entered into our book raffles where I give away books that I read on the show. Uh, even last week we had a listener named Callie who 
one this amazing little copy of Treasure Island. Um, so I'll be giving out more books like that. And that's what you get at the $5 sleepyhead level, along with other poetry. So, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So if you want to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I'm going to be reading a classic that um, I've read some Edgar Rice Burroughs on the show before, but I have never delved into his John Carter series. Um, so tonight, we're going to do just that. And we're going to be reading A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is um, it's a pretty classic tale. In some ways, it was very ahead of its time. In some ways, the writing was of its time and didn't age super, super well. Um, but it's, uh, it's a really good story to fall asleep to. And um, I really hope you enjoy dozing off to it. So tonight, A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 On the Arizona Hills I am a very old man. How old I do not know. Possibly I am a hundred. Possibly more. But I cannot tell you because I have never aged as other men. Nor do I remember any childhood. So far as I can recollect, I have always been a man. A man of about thirty. I appear today as I did forty years or more ago, and yet I feel that I cannot go on living forever, that some day I shall die the real death from which there is no resurrection. I do not know why I should fear death, I who have died twice and am still alive. But yet, I have the same horror of it as you who have never died, and it is because of this terror of death I believe that I am so convinced of my mortality. And because of this conviction, I have determined to write down the story of the interesting periods of my life and of my death. I cannot explain the phenomena. I can only set it down here 
in the words of an ordinary soldier of fortune, a chronicle of the strange events that befell me during the ten years that my dead body lay undiscovered in an Arizona cave. I have never told this story, nor shall mortal man see this manuscript until after I have passed over for eternity. I know that the average human mind will not believe what it cannot grasp, and so I do not purpose being pilloried by the public, the pulpit, and the press, and held up as a colossal liar when I am but telling the simple truths which someday science will substantiate. Possibly, the suggestions which I gained upon Mars and the knowledge which I can set down in this chronicle will aid in an earlier understanding of the mysteries of our sister planet. Mysteries to you, but no longer mysteries to me. My name is John Carter. I am better known as Captain Jack Carter of Virginia. At the close of the Civil War, I found myself possessed of several hundred thousand dollars, Confederate, and a captain's commission in the cavalry arm of an army which no longer existed. The servant of a state which had vanished with the hopes of the South. Masterless, penniless, and with my only means of livelihood, fighting, gone. I determined to work my way to the southwest and attempt to retrieve my fallen fortunes in a search for gold. I spent nearly a year prospecting in company with another Confederate officer, Captain James K. Powell of Richmond. We were extremely fortunate, for late in the winter of 1865, after many hardships and privations, we located the most remarkable gold-bearing quartz vein that our wildest dreams had ever pictured. Powell, who was a mining engineer by education, stated that we had uncovered over a million dollars worth of ore in a trifle over three months. As our equipment was crude in the extreme, we decided that one of us must return to civilization, purchase the necessary machinery, and return with a sufficient force of men properly to work the mine. As Powell was familiar with the country, as well as with the mechanical requirements of mining, we determined that it would be best for him to make the trip. It was agreed that I was to hold down our claim against the remote possibility of its being jumped by some wandering prospector. On March 3, 1866, Powell and I packed his provisions on two of our burrows, and bidding me goodbye, he mounted his horse and started down the mountainside toward the valley, across which led the first stage of his journey. The morning of Powell's departure was, like nearly all Arizona mornings, clear and beautiful. I could see him and his little pack animals picking their way down the mountainside toward the valley. And all during the morning, 
I would catch occasional glimpses of them as they topped a hog back or came out upon a level plateau. My last sight of Powell was about three in the afternoon as he entered the shadows of the range on the opposite side of the valley. Some half hour later, I happened to glance casually across the valley and was much surprised to know three little dots in about the same place I had last seen my friend and his two pack animals. I am not given to needless worrying, but the more I tried to convince myself that all was well with Powell and that the dots I had seen on his trail were antelope or wild horses, the less I was able to assure myself. Since we had entered the territory, we had not seen a hostile, and we had, therefore, become careless in the extreme, and were wont to ridicule the stories we had heard of the great numbers of these marauders that were supposed to haunt the trails, taking their toll in lives and torture of every party which fell into their merciless clutches. Powell, I knew, was well-armed and, further, an experienced fighter. But I, too, had lived and fought for years among the Sioux in the north, and I knew his chances were small against a party of cunning trailing Apaches. Finally, I could endure the suspense no longer and arming myself with two coal revolvers and a carbine, I strapped two belts of cartridges about me, and catching my saddle horse, started down the trail taken by Pal in the morning. As soon as I reached comparatively level ground, I urged my mount into a canter and continued this, where the going permitted until close upon dusk, I discovered the point where other tracks joined those of Powell. They were the tracks of unshod ponies, three of them, and the ponies had been galloping. I followed rapidly until, darkness shutting down, I was forced to await the rising of the moon and given an opportunity to speculate on the question of the wisdom of my chase. Possibly I had conjured up impossible dangers, like some nervous old housewife, and when I should catch up with Powell, would get a good laugh for my pains. However, I am not prone to sensitiveness, and the following of a sense of duty, wherever it may lead, has always been a kind of fetich with me throughout my life, which may account for the honors bestowed upon me by three republics and the decorations and friendships of an old and powerful emperor and several lesser kings, in whose service my sword has been read many a time. About nine o'clock, the moon was sufficiently bright for me to proceed on my way, and I had no difficulty in following the trail at a fast walk and in some places at a brisk trot, until about midnight I reached the waterhole where Powell had expected to camp. 
I came upon the spot unexpectedly, finding it entirely deserted, with no signs of having been recently occupied as a camp. I was interested to know that the tracks of the pursuing horsemen, for such I was now convinced they must be, continued after Powell with only a brief stop at the hole for water, and always at the same rate of speed as his. I was positive now that the trailers were Apaches and that they wished to capture Powell alive for the fiendish pleasure of the torture. So I urged my horse onward at a dangerous pace, hoping against hope that I would catch up with them before they attacked him. Further speculation was suddenly cut short by the faint report of two shots far ahead of me. I knew that Powell would need me now, if ever, and I instantly urged my horse to his topmost speed up the narrow and difficult mountain trail. I had forged ahead for perhaps a mile or more without hearing further sounds when the trail suddenly debouched onto a small, open plateau near the summit of the pass. I had passed through a narrow, overhanging gorge just before entering suddenly upon this table land, and the sight which met my eyes filled me with consternation and dismay. The little stretch of level land was white with teepees, and there were probably half a thousand warriors clustered around some object near the center of the camp. Their attention was so wholly riveted to this point of interest that they did not notice me, and I easily could have turned back into the dark recesses of the gorge and made my escape with perfect safety. The fact, however, that this did not occur to me until the following day removes any possible right to a claim to heroism to which the narration of this episode might possibly otherwise entitle me. I do not believe that I am made of the stuff which constitutes heroes, because in all the hundreds of instances that my voluntary acts have placed me face to face with death, I cannot recall a single one where any alternative step that I took occurred to me until many hours later. My mind is evidently so constituted that I have subconsciously forced into the path of duty without recourse to tiresome mental processes. However that may be, I have never regretted that cowardice is not optional with me. In this instance, I was, of course, positive that Powell was the center of attraction, but whether I thought or acted first, I do not know. But within an instant, from the moment the scene broke upon my view, I had whipped out my revolvers and was charging down upon the entire army of warriors, shooting rapidly and whooping at the top of my lungs. Single-handed, I could not have pursued better tactics, for these men, convinced by a sudden surprise that not less than a regiment of regulars was upon them, 
turned and fled in every direction for their bows, arrows, and rifles. The view which their hurried routing disclosed filled me with apprehension and with rage. Under the clear rays of the Arizona moon lay Powell, his body fairly bristling with hostile arrows. That he was already dead I could not be but convinced, and yet I would have saved his body from further damage as quickly as I would have saved the man himself from death. Riding close to him, I reached down from the saddle and grasping his cartridge belt, drew him up across the withers of my mouth. A backward glance convinced me that to return by the way I came would be more hazardous than to continue across the plateau. So putting spurs to my poor beast, I made a dash for the opening to the pass which I could distinguish on the far side of the tableland. All the men had by this time discovered that I was alone, and I was pursued by imprecations, arrows, and rifle balls. The fact that it is difficult to aim anything but imprecations accurately by moonlight, that they were upset by the sudden and unexpected manner of my advent, and that I was a rather rapidly moving target, saved me from the various deadly projectiles of the enemy and permitted me to reach the shadows of the surrounding peaks before an orderly pursuit could be organized. My horse was traveling, practically unguided, as I knew that I had probably less knowledge of the exact location of the trail to the pass than he, and thus it happened that he entered a defile, which led to the summit of the range, and not the pass which I had hoped would carry me to the valley into safety. It is probable, however, that to this fact I owe my life and the remarkable experiences and adventures which befell me during the following ten years. My first knowledge that I was on the wrong trail came when I heard the yells of the pursuing men suddenly growing fainter and fainter far off to my left. I knew then that they had passed to the left of the jagged rock formation at the edge of the plateau, to the right of which my horse had borne me and the body of Powell. I drew rein on a little level promontory overlooking the trail below and to my left and saw the party of pursuing men disappearing around the point of the neighboring peak. I knew they would soon discover that they were on the wrong trail and that the search for me would be renewed in the right direction as soon as they located my tracks. I had gone but a short distance further when what seemed to be an excellent trail opened up around the face of a high cliff. The trail was level and quite broad and led upward in the general direction I wished to go. The cliff arose for several hundred feet on my right, and on my left was an equal and nearly perpendicular drop to the bottom of a rocky ravine. I had followed this trail 
for perhaps a hundred yards when a sharp turn to the right brought me to the mouth of a large cave. The opening was about four feet in height and three to four feet wide, and at this opening the trail ended. It was now morning, and with the customary lack of dawn, which is a startling characteristic of Arizona, it had become daylight almost without warning. Dismounting, I laid Powell upon the ground, but the most painstaking examination failed to reveal the faintest spark of light. I forced water from my canteen between his dead lips, bathed his face and rubbed his hands, working over him continuously for the better part of an hour in the face of the fact that I knew him to be dead. I was very fond of Powell. He was thoroughly a man in every respect, a polished gentleman, a staunch and true friend. It was with a feeling of the deepest grief that I finally gave up my crude endeavors at resuscitation. Leaving Powell where he lay on the edge, I crept into the cave to Reconador. I found a large chamber, possibly a hundred feet in diameter and thirty or forty feet in height, a smooth and well-worn floor and many other evidences that the cave had, at some remote period, been inhabited. The back of the cave was so lost in dense shadow that I could not distinguish whether there were openings into other apartments or not. As I was continuing my examination, I commenced to feel a pleasant drowsiness creeping over me which I attributed to the fatigue of my long and strenuous ride and the reaction from the excitement of the fight and the pursuit. I felt comparatively safe in my present location as I knew that one man could defend the trail to the cave against an army. I soon became so drowsy that I could scarcely resist the strong desire to throw myself on the floor of the cave for a few moments' rest. But I knew that this would never do, as I knew it would mean certain death at the hands of my followers, who might be upon me at any moment. With an effort, I started toward the opening of the cave, only to reel drunkenly against the side wall, and from there slip prone upon the floor. Chapter 2 The Escape of the Dead A sense of delicious dreaminess overcame me. My muscles relaxed, and I was on the point of giving away to my desire to sleep when the sound of approaching horses reached my ears. I attempted to spring to my feet, I was horrified to discover that my muscles refused to respond to my will. I was now thoroughly awake, but as unable to move a muscle as though I turned to stone. It was then for the first time 
that I noticed a slight vapor filling the cave. It was extremely tenuous and only noticeable against the opening which led to daylight. There also came to my nostrils a faintly pungent odor, and I could only assume that I had been overcome by some poisonous gas. But why I should retain my mental faculties and yet be unable to move, I could not fathom. I lay facing the opening of the cave to where I could see the short stretch of trail which lay between the cave and the turn of the cliff around which the trail led. The noise of the approaching horses had ceased, and I judged that they were creeping stealthily upon me along the little ledge which led to my living tomb. I remembered that I hoped they would make short work of me, as I did not particularly relish the thought of the innumerable things they might do to me if the spirit prompted them. I had not long to wait before a stealthy sound appraised me of their nearness, and then a war-bonneted, paint-streaked face was thrust cautiously around the shoulder of the cliff, the eyes looking into mine. That he could see me in the dim light of the cave, I was sure for. The early morning sun was falling full upon me through the opening. The fellow, instead of approaching, merely stood and stared, his eyes bulging and his jaw dropped. And then another face appeared, and a third and a fourth and a fifth craning their necks over the shoulders of their fellows whom they could not pass upon the narrow ledge. Each face was the picture of awe and fear, but for what reason I did not know, nor did I learn until ten years later, that there were still other men behind those who regarded me was apparent from the fact that the leaders passed back whispered word to those behind them. Suddenly, a low but distinct moaning sound issued from the recesses of the cave behind me, and as it reached the ears of the men outside, they turned and fled in terror, panic-stricken. So frantic were their efforts to escape from the unseen thing behind me that one of them was hurled headlong from the cliff to the rocks below. Their cries echoed in the canyon for a short time, and then all was still once more. The sound which had frightened them was not repeated, but it had been sufficient, as it were, to start me speculating on the possible horror which lurked in the shadows at my back. Fear is a relative term, and so I can only measure my feelings at that time by what I had experienced in previous positions of danger and by those that I have passed through since. But I can say without shame that if the sensations I endure during the next few minutes were fear, then may God help the coward, for cowardice is of a surety its own punishment. To be held, paralyzed, 
with one's back towards some horrible and unknown danger, from the very sound of which the ferocious warriors turn in wild stampede, as a flock of sheep would madly flee from a pack of wolves, seems to me the last word in fearsome predicaments for a man who had never been used to fighting for his life with all the energy of a powerful physique. Several times I thought I heard faint sounds behind me, as of somebody moving cautiously. But eventually even these ceased, and I was left to the contemplation of my position without interruption. I could but vaguely conjecture the cause of my paralysis, and my only hope lay in that it might pass off as suddenly as it had fallen upon me. Late in the afternoon, my horse, which had been standing with dragging rain before the cave, started slowly down the trail, evidently in search of food and water, and I was left alone with my mysterious unknown companion and the body of my friend, which lay within my range of vision upon the ledge where I had placed it in the early morning. From then until possibly midnight, all was silence, the silence of the dead. Then suddenly, the awful moan of the morning broke upon my startled ears, and there came again from the black shadows the sound of a moving thing and a faint rustling as of dead leaves. The shock to my already overstrained nervous system was terrible in the extreme, and with a superhuman effort, I strove to break my awful bonds. It was an effort of the mind, of the will, of the nerves, not muscular, for I could not move even so much as my little finger, but nonetheless mighty for all that. And then something gave. There was a momentary feeling of nausea, a sharp click as of the snapping of a steel wire, and I stood with my back against the wall of the cave facing my unknown foe. And then the moonlight flooded the cave, and there before me lay my own body, as it had been lying all these hours, with the eyes staring toward the open ledge and the hands resting limply on the ground. I looked first at my lifeless clay there upon the floor of the cave and then down at myself in utter bewilderment. For there I lay, clothed, and yet here I stood but naked as the minute of my birth. The transition had been so sudden and so unexpected that it left me for a moment forgetful of aught else than my strange metamorphosis. My first thought was, is this then death? Have I indeed passed over forever into that other life? But I could not well believe this, as I could feel my heart pounding against my ribs from the exertion of my efforts to release myself from the anesthesis which had held me. 
My breath was coming in quick, short gasps. Cold sweat stood out from every pore of my body, and the ancient experiment of pinching revealed the fact that I was anything other than a wraith. Again was I suddenly recalled to my immediate surroundings by a repetition of the weird moan from the depths of the cave. Naked and unarmed as I was, I had no desire to face the unseen thing which menaced me. My revolvers were strapped to my lifeless body, which, for some unfathomable reason, I could not bring myself to touch. My carbine was in its boot, strapped to my saddle, and as my horse had wandered off, I was left without means of defense. My only alternative seemed to lie in flight, and my decision was crystallized by a recurrence of the rustling sound from the thing which now seemed, in the darkness of the cave and to my distorted imagination, to be creeping stealthily upon me. Unable longer to resist the temptation to escape this horrible place, I leaped quickly through the opening into the starlight of a clear Arizona night. The crisp, fresh mountain air outside the cave acted as an immediate tonic, and I felt new life and new courage coursing through me. Pausing upon the brink of the ledge, I unbraided myself for what now seemed to me wholly unwarranted apprehension. I reasoned with myself that I had lain helpless for many hours within the cave, yet nothing had bothered me, that my better judgment, when permitted the direction of clear and logical reasoning, convinced me that the noises I had heard must have resulted from purely natural and harmless causes. Probably the conformation of the cave was such that a slight breeze had caused the sounds I had heard. I decided to investigate, but first I lifted my head to fill my lungs with the pure, invigorating night air of the mountains. As I did so, I saw stretching far below me the beautiful vista of rocky gorge and level, cacti-studded flat wrought by the moonlight into a miracle of soft splendor and wondrous enchantment. Few western wonders are more inspiring than the beauties of an Arizona moonlit landscape. The silver mountains in the distance the strange lights and shadows upon Hogback and Arroyo, and the grotesque details of the stiff yet beautiful cacti form a picture at once enchanting and inspiring, as though one were catching for the first time a glimpse of some dead and forgotten world. So different is it from the aspect of any other spot upon our earth. As I stood thus meditating, I turned my gaze from the landscape to the heavens where the myriad stars formed a gorgeous and fitting canopy for the wonders of the earthly scene. 
My attention was quickly riveted by a large red star close to the distant horizon. As I gazed upon it, I felt a spell of overpowering fascination. It was Mars, the god of war, and for me, the fighting man, it had always held the power of irresistible enchantment. As I gazed at it on that far-gone night, it seemed to call across the unthinkable void, to lure me to it, to draw me as the lodestone attracts a particle of iron. My longing was beyond the power of opposition. I closed my eyes, stretched out my arms toward the god of my vocation, and felt myself drawn with the suddenness of thought through the trackless immensity of space. There was an instant of extreme cold and utter darkness. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.